It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The United States is entangled in a culture war that pits evangelical Christians against secular progressives. It's a winner-takes-all atmosphere with little room for compromise, says David French, a senior writer for National Review. Both sides feel like the other side doesn't want to preserve liberty. This culture war, French says, is fundamentally incompatible with a multi-faith, multi-ethnic, pluralistic democracy. We have to learn to figure out a way where the most hardcore Calvinists like me and the most hardcore secular progressive can not only live together, but flourish together. But right now, both sides are many times thinking, that's not the path. Today, we zero in on evangelicals in America, a group that consistently supports President Trump. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. In the 19th century, the word evangelical was associated with a group of malcontents who fought for human dignity, says Michael Gerson, a columnist for the Washington Post. They were the force behind abolitionism, behind prison reform, behind the reform of mental institutions, behind much early feminism. But now evangelicals are the most loyal and most vital element of the Trump coalition. In the 2016 presidential election, a record 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. This, even though he had been accused of sexual assault and married three times, issues some pundits thought might prevent them from supporting Trump. Evangelical Protestantism is the largest Christian following in the United States, and since 2016, evangelicals make up an increasingly Republican group. So how can these deeply faithful citizens support a president whose behaviors and values don't match up with traditional Christian mores? Chris Buskirk, editor and publisher of American Greatness, and Kate Bowler, who teaches the history of Christianity in North America at Duke Divinity School, join David French and Michael Gerson on stage. Here's Michael. By way of disclosure, um, I consider myself an evangelical. I studied theology at Wheaton College, which some of you know is a pretty uh, religiously conservative place. When I went there, the joke on campus was that the administration had banned premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. (laughs) Um, Kate, you've probably talked to more televangelists and megachurch pastors than anyone face-to-face. The broad support of Donald Trump by evangelicals doesn't seem to be a natural relationship, um, given the president's preference for prejudice and dehumanization and porn stars. Um, I I love this question already. uh, (laughs) Did you? It it feels a little leading. (laughs) But where is it going? So how do you explain this attraction? Yeah. Well, I mean, in this sort of subset of American evangelicalism that I've been studying uh, for the last 10 years, this prosperity group, it was a surprising... It was a surprising turn for them to think about having a more political voice, in part because uh, prosperity gospel... Um, has built most of its reputation on its therapeutic value. It's the religion that works. Follow God and God will reward you. And so because of that, it didn't need much of a political machinery because it was in a way an end run around all the systems. It, was, uh, it didn't have a lot to say about government. It didn't have a lot to say about political process. I never once heard a politically tinged sermon in all my time there. But that did change uh, when Donald Trump began to show favor to some of its stars, Mm -hmm. folks like Paula White, 
Um, Pat Robertson had already, already had a kind of dual allegiance of evangelical and prosperity, so he wasn't much of a surprise. Uh, but a number, Kenneth Copeland and his uh, glamour puss wife, Gloria, uh, they were, I think, completely delighted to be put on the uh, religious advisory board and, and surprised because as much as they had millions and millions of viewers, they hadn't really thought of themselves as having a political agenda other than that they were sort of typically pro-family. Right. And so this was, uh, I think, an education for them and also an, an awkward pairing uh, because for the most part, um, they build their own personal reputations on one of moral purity and family togetherness. Right. Uh, and Donald Trump is not much of a family man. Um, but I think what they found, especially in the prosperity gospel, was a very unusual resonance between his hearty individualism. Mm -hmm. Some of his early books sound exactly like uh, old prosperity tomes, like Think and Grow Rich, mm. were very similar to his early titles. And, uh, and this sort of businessman made good as evidence of the gospel showed both the goodness of the idea that America is an incubator for all good talent mm -hmm. and, and that God rewards the faithful Christian. So in a way, it was a perfect alliance between one ideology and another. Hmm. Chris, in a less leading version of the question, um, why do you think that white evangelicals in particular have embraced populism? So populism uh, in general, I think, is sort of a, a fraught term, um, and I'm not sure that it's even true. Uh, I would say that uh, what white evangelicals have embraced is, um, is a conservative nationalism as opposed to uh, populism. Um, and that's, you know, that you see that in phrases like America first and make America great again, those sorts of things. So to the, to, so to the question of, well, why? Why, why Trump? Um, and in particular with regards to white evangelicals, and if you, without being too pedantic, if I can just say by sort of quibbles with the term evangelical, as you guys probably know. I mean, it's such a broad term. It catches yeah. so many different sorts we'll of people. we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but why? Because I think that, um, and this is, my, this is my own experience, people I know, uh, both the sort of people in the pews and people uh, in, in professional full-time ministry, is they don't uh, view their political selves um, as being an extension of their uh, faith. In other words, they don't think that the church governs their politics. In other words, the church has a spiritual role. That has, that has political implications for sure. Um, and, that, uh, and that when they come to choose a candidate, it is, well, not any different than any other citizen. Uh, an atheist, uh, a, a Jew, a Hindu, whatever, it is, well, which candidate do I think best suits my interests and which one is going to best serve the country and implement the policies that I think, uh, that, that I think will promote um, the peace and prosperity of the nation. David, you have a new piece in Time Magazine talking about evangelical motivations. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you describe their motivations? Fear. Uh, fear is the dominant motivation of the late-stage embrace of Donald Trump uh, in the 2016 election and the continuing embrace of Donald Trump. And let me, let me go back a little bit and explain what I mean. So in 1998, um, I'm old enough to remember the Clinton scandals and the fallout from that very, very well. And in uh, 1998, the Southern Baptist Convention gathered and they issued a resolution on moral character of public officials. And this is a document that Christians across the land could read and nod along with 
virtually every syllable of it. It had the classic whereas, 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 be it resolve that framework. <laughs> and uh, essentially, you know, to, to make a, a, a long document short, the argument was, of course, no human being who runs for anything is perfect. But the key phrase was that tolerance of serious wrong by public officials sears the conscience of a culture. And, and this is a key phrase, surely will lead to God's judgment, okay? Surely will lead to God's judgment. Now, this is a very important statement for this reason. What does it mean, when you say you're a religious person, what does that mean? For a lot of people, the reality is it means that, they, that religion is, part, is a big part of their cultural tradition. It gives them a sense of ritual and place uh, it provides a connection with the family history. It provides a habit and a rhythm of life. It provides a community. All of these things are very, very, very important. But you'll notice what I did not say. What I did not say is it is a connection to an absolute eternal truth that trumps, that, in other words, that it is a connection to an eternal truth that uh, one must follow at all costs. Uh, now, Many people will say that, yes, I am absolutely connected to an eternal truth that one must follow at all costs. But you never know if that's true as a person of faith until that principle is tested, until that becomes difficult. And I remember many years after all the battles over Clinton where Republicans were extremely self-righteous about, look at the Democrats after claiming to be concerned about sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, overlooked these really compelling claims of rape against a president, of groping against a president, of serial infidelity, of lies under oath, and they circled the wagons. Look at those people. And I remember, like, you know, 2013, 2014, I just had this bug in my mind. What if the roles were reversed? Mm -hmm. How would the GOP respond? Well, be careful what you ever think of. <laughs> so what if the roles were reversed, like in spades, instead of you know, a handful of allegations of infidelity and a handful of allegations of, of actual sexual misconduct, you get 22 claims of sexual misconduct ranging from sexual harassment to actual forcible rape. What happens if, instead of this really tumultuous marriage, you have three marriages? What happened? And, and you just keep going down the line. And the answer turned out to be, we will circle the wagons around this man as vigorously as the Democrats did around Donald Trump. And at which point you look back at the 1998 statement and you say, is that key statement true? Tolerance of serious wrongs sears the conscience of a culture and surely results in God's judgment. If, is, if that is true, Evangelicals have made a grievous error, a grievous error. And I happen to believe that statement is true. And I have a lot greater fear of God than I do or ever did of Hillary Clinton or whoever the Democratic nominee is in 2020. Kate, I want to get to Chris's point a little bit. What kind of internal distinctions are important to recall when we think about the broad category of evangelicalism. What, for example, what, what do most journalists get wrong? Sure. Well, 
I, I just, just finished this uh, long study of evangelical women, and, uh, and I thought, well, surely this won't be so hard. I'm a historian. I can just figure out who are the important people, and I'll, I'll do it the way I would study men. I'll just look at the largest institutions, evangelical institutions, and I'll run down a list. Oh, wait. Uh, <laughs> Only 2% of megachurches, which is to say congregations over 2,000 people, are run by a woman, and they're typically gloriously widowed into it when they were a co-pastor and they were left to their own devices. So they really don't have formidable institutions to lead. So how do we decide how influence works in the evangelical world? So I did um, a few hundred interviews and about five years of study of the most important evangelical women and realized that they were never going to be the people that journalists called because they didn't always have a PR staff, a stable institution, and talking points. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, their audiences, so this is just like a fun game. Every, every person who ever goes to like the Costco uh, book area next to the asparagus or uh, like the Target thing next to the Joanna Gaines uh, memorial. Um, <laughs> just flip through the cheap paperbacks and ask yourself, like, what are the best sellers? And the answers are all evangelical women. They're not the That's people true. you would think of, and they're not often the ones that you think of next to Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr. as like being the spearheads of the, of the evangelical movement. Instead, they're those who lead sort of informal online congregations that have millions of followers, massive Twitter followings is probably the best way to count influence. And, uh, and they're, uh, they're considered spiritual guides uh, to um, health and happiness and family togetherness and emotional distress. And I think they're far more influential than any of us give them credit for because we don't, they're not in a brick and mortar building. I want to follow up. How does the story of evangelicalism get changed if it includes those women? Sure. Maybe. Well, it has almost no political valence overtly. So, for instance, women I spoke to uh, were, were much more likely to vote around questions of abortion, for example. But they were deeply troubled by Trump's um, sexual misconduct, in part because part of the women's circuit is talking about sexual trauma. When people go to events, they're looking for emotional, psychological, spiritual healing, and a lot of it is from uh, issues around sexuality and abuse. So they were very conflicted uh, about, their, uh, about being divided along to neat party lines. And it's a much more of a therapeutic movement than I think people right. imagine that it is. When Beth Moore came out strongly against Trump. She did, and Beth yeah. Moore, who, if you, don't, if you guys don't know who Beth Moore is, she is somebody absolutely <laughs> worth following. Just a, yeah. just a delightful presence. Came out very strongly against Trump and a lot of her own core audience turned against her. Yeah, the two yeah. most famous tough. evangelical women are probably Beth Moore and Jen Hatmaker, and both were virulently anti-Trump. Mm -hmm. um, Chris, in the light of all this, what do you think that evangelicals are gaining from their relationship with Trump, and what are they losing? I don't think evangelicals look at it that way. Yeah. Um, I don't think, um, and again, this, it's, uh, I, the reason I hesitate a little bit is because you know the, the evangelical um, umbrella extends from the people you've covered in the prosperity gospel way over here uh, to people sort of in my camp as a Presbyterian, right? And that when people, the culture talks about evangelicals, it just lumps all those people in together who really don't have a lot of things uh, theologically in common for sure and in other ways too. Um, Except that 81% of them voted for the president. I mean, it was a real, yeah, no, that's right. it was a real endorsement. Yeah, no, that's right. And so when I come back and I, I think that uh, 
what evangelicals primarily uh, look at look at the president as um, being someone who supports policies. It's just the discrete policies, whether it be immigration or trade or you know just political things, as opposed to uh, spiritual elements. They also look at the president as somebody who will. Um, and this uh, maybe goes to David's point a little bit about the fear thing. Evangelicals uh, have a sense that um, that there is a desire in parts of the culture to curtail their ability to practice their faith. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so they saw in part in the president not just somebody who would you know, do the right thing as they saw it on taxes or on immigration or trade or whatever, uh, but also somebody who would uh, appoint judges who would protect their right to, uh, to freely assemble, to worship as they please, to practice their faith. Yeah. David, what have you seen of that apocalyptic tone in evangelicalism? And... <laughs> oh, man. So one of the more, more interesting pieces I saw in the, in the run-up to the 2016 election, where there was a couple, there were, there were really three, one not by, and to, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know if Michael Anton is evangelical, maybe you know better than I do. Roman Catholic. Roman Catholic. He wrote a, a piece called The Flight 93 Election, where essentially uh, the theme was you have to charge the cockpit of the presidency or we'll die. Um, <laughs> if Hillary wins, or get, you got to charge the cockpit or we'll die. Another piece written by a, a dear friend of mine um, was entitled uh, Christians Must Vote for Donald Trump in Self-Defense. Eric Metaxas wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal and said that if you don't vote for Donald Trump, it's not that we will lose the Constitution for a decade, we will lose it forever. So, so this was the tone of the discourse, yeah. was in essence that you're gonna lose the Constitution. I had people come up to me and tears in their eyes say, how can you be opposed, to, I was opposed to Trump and to Clinton, um, how can you be this never Trumper? Uh, America is going to be over, over. America will be over. And so this was this depth of feeling that existed that was very real, and there were, and let's, let's be honest, I, wish, I almost wish sometimes I could take, I could go into one, a room with just evangelicals and grab them by the lapels and say, have some faith. You know, have some faith, guys. If you believe in a sovereign God who loves his church, you're going to be okay, okay? And then I want to go into a room with a lot of my progressive friends, and I say, come on, guys, stop giving them reason to be afraid, <laughs> So, for example, um, there was in the oral argument of the Obergefell, uh, the same-sex marriage decision, um, Justice Alito asked the Obama Solicitor General, um, okay, so if we find same-sex marriage is uh, going to be uh, constitutional, what will that mean for the tax exemptions of religious Christian educational institutions? And he said, here's the right answer to that. It doesn't mean anything. You can have same-sex marriage, and you can have Wheaton College. You can have same-sex marriage, and you can have my university in Nashville, which was far more fundamentalist than Wheaton. We had no drinking, no dancing, and the RAs would go to night spots in Nashville looking for Lipscomb parking stickers. And if you were in... Pull you out. Pull you, you were done. You were done. Potential breathalyzers when you came in after 11 o'clock curfew, so... Serious business. But anyway, that you can have same-sex marriage and you can have Lipscomb and you can have Wheaton and you can have your kids' Christian school that they go to because the only institutions that lose their tax exemption right now are institutions that are out-and-out racist, like that ban interracial dating. And all of a sudden, 
and interracial marriages, and all of a sudden Christians were saying, wait, is it going to be the position of a future democratic administration that we're the equivalent of the Klan for having the same set of sexual ethics we've had in the entire history of the church? What? And, and uh, there was a really smart law professor who wrote a piece in the Washington Post and said that's the oral argument that cost the Democrats the presidency. Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, I'm, I kind of want, uh, there's a, a good friend of mine who wrote a book sometime uh, some time ago, and he said he wanted to create something called the Chill the Hell Out Coalition. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, I'm so on board with that, um, that this idea that we have to have a culture war in which both sides feel as if the other side is not just wanting to preserve its own liberty and institutions, but to march through and crush the life out of the other side is fundamentally incompatible with a multi-faith, multi-ethnic, continent-sized, pluralistic democracy. We're, you know, it's just it's incompatible with it. We have to have learned to figure out a way where the most hardcore Calvinist like me and the most hardcore secular progressive can not only live together, but flourish together. And that's, that's the path. But right now, both sides are many times thinking that's not the path. Yeah. The path has got to be I win, you lose. I grew up inside Canadian evangelicalism. And um, I'm always a little baffled, though, that evangelicalism here is so deeply tied to civil religion, like why its framework so naturally creates an overlay onto this national project. I know part of it has to do with it's got an overwhelmingly individualistic framework. As an individual, I choose God. All the language of agency and choice seems right. If we choose God, so too we um, Americans overwhelmingly think of themselves as a bootstrapping culture. I've just It's just that I've seen evangelicalism flourish in, without the, the need for the civil project that I, right. I still find myself, and I'm so glad to be on this stage, but I'm never sure why a Canadian should be on this stage <laughs> if, if evangelicalism is so wedded to an American project. That's a very generational thing, I believe, with, with uh, conservative evangelicals. If you talked, and it's almost like the break point is my age. So if I go to a Christian gathering and I deliver the sick, because I say the same thing whether I'm talking to a mainly secular audience or a mainly religious audience, and I'll get off the stage and you know, people come up. If someone is older than me, I can almost within like 90% predict they're going to be mad. And then if they're younger than me, they're going to be like, yeah. And I've even had a father-son combo where the father was yelling at me, and then after he walked off, his son patted me on the back. He goes, keep it up. And so there's a very generational thing in, in the way that evangelicals view this national project. And, but you're exactly right. I think with the older voting evangelical public, there is this view of America almost in a way that uh, almost is like an Israel, that America is almost like an Israel. And uh, with this deep religious connection to the American national project itself. Chris, you wanted to get in on that. Yeah, I do want to jump in on that because I think you're right. I mean, I think there is um, in broad swaths uh, of evangelicalism, not every place, but very, very broad swaths, there is a conflation of, just to use a term, patriotism and Christianity. Um, And I think that's inappropriate. I think it is uh, not faithful to the actual Mm -hmm. gospel and that uh, when you conflate the two, you actually denigrate the role of the church, which is primarily a spiritual role. It's lived out in life, of course, uh, but the spirituality of the church is something that I think is uh, is worth defending. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, there's one point I did want to make earlier, and this goes to the the, uh, the point that David made about the, this um, 
statement that the Southern Baptist made in 1998, um, it rubbed me the wrong way then, and it still does because of the context. Uh, the context there was the Clinton impeachment, and the Baptists were intentionally injecting themselves into the impeachment debate, mm-hmm. using the church as a means of scoring a political point against a, a president the Southern Baptists didn't support. Um, and that is, uh, that is a role that I think is inappropriate uh, for the church. The church has a primary, the Christian church has a primary mission, which is, uh, is to administer the means of grace, which is to preach the gospel, to direct public worship of, uh, of Christians, to encourage fellowship of Christians, those sorts of things. And except in the, most, the rarest of circumstances where people are being directly, di- directly forced by the government to, to break their faith, I think the, the, the church uh, undermines its own moral authority and its mission by getting involved in uh, direct politics. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Today's talk was taken from the stages of the Aspen Ideas Festival. The festival is an annual 10-day event at the end of June that gathers together the world's greatest minds. Conversations about society, politics, science, the arts, and more provoke, inform, and challenge attendees. If you're interested in having a -a one-of-a-kind, on-the-ground festival experience, buy your pass today. Registration for the 2020 festival is open on our website, aspenideas.org. That's aspenideas.org. Let's return to our featured conversation. Here's Michael Gerson. I wanted to ask you, David, just following on that point, how do you think that evangelical political engagement is affecting its broader and primary mission of evangelism? It's catastrophic mm-hmm. right now. It's catastrophic. And, uh, and, I'll, and I'll explain why. Um, what we have to understand about the United States, I'm, I'm sure a ton of you have heard of this phrase, the big sort. And the big sort means that not all American demographics are, are equally layered throughout our society. The demographics of Franklin, Tennessee, where I live, are very different from the demographics of New York. Um, and one of the things that shocked me, I grew up in rural Kentucky and Tennessee, went to a, a very conservative Christian school, went to, uh, got into Harvard Law School, let's be clear on the redneck diversity quotient. Uh, <laughs> I make no pretense of that. And, and one of the first things that really surprised me was I was encountering a ton of people who had never met an evangelical Christian before in their lives. And so the testimony of what it meant to be a Christian to them was entirely come, came from a distance. And so what I have a lot of my Christian friends say, they, they will take the, the position that Chris took, which is I'm separating my political life from my spiritual life. And my view is you just cannot do that. That every aspect of your life should be gospel infused and every aspect of your life must advance and as much as you can as a fallen, flawed human being as I undoubtedly am, as much as you can, every single aspect of your life must model the values that you advance within the context of the gospel every part of it. And this is, this is completely orthodox evangelical theology. No orthodox evangelical preacher is going to say to you, you know, what's really important is how you behave in the four walls of the church or in your home, but by golly, when you're in that insurance agency, you know, feel free to defraud your customers. Uh, nobody's going to say that. It's the, the gospel should infuse every aspect of your being 
and that the principal purpose of whatever project that you're in truly should be to glorify God. And what I question is, now I, and I've said this many times, look, people looking at 2016 in good faith faced hard decisions. I do not begrudge anybody the decision they made in 2016. The problem I have is if you rationalize or defend conduct in your own team that you would condemn in others. That's about a textbook example of hypocrisy. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. Jerry Falwell, um, not um, Franklin Graham, who let me clear, I respect so much of the work that he's done. This is not an indictment on the man Yeah, Samaritan's Purse is amazing. Samaritan's Purse is amazing. So yeah. everybody needs to not be so thin-skinned and think that I can critique, I'm condemning Franklin Graham to hell for making a political mistake. He's done many good things. But here's one thing that was not a good thing. In 1998, he writes an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in which he says, if a president is going to lie to his wife and to his daughter, who will he not lie to? Which happens to be a position I agree with. If somebody's fundamentally dishonest in the most important areas of life, they're dishonest. And then in 2018, he says to the Associated Press, oh, that, I, I shouldn't have said that. I mean, the stuff between Stormy Daniels and Donald Trump is just between them. Never mind that he may have violated federal he may have committed felonies in the context of covering this up. It's just between him. But then Pete Buttigieg runs, and here's Falwell again saying, you know, Buttigieg's marriage is a problem. Okay, so what's the only consistency here? It's the advocacy of the Republican politician. And I think that's a problem, and I think that people who are not don't have the benefit of saying, okay, Chris, I disagree with you politically, but I know you in all these other contexts, and you're just a prince of a guy. Your only exposure to Christians is in the context of this hypocrisy and this violation of what you've been proclaiming for decades to be your fundamental principles. I think that hurts the witness. Okay. We need to bring in the audience. I think we've covered a lot of ground. So how about over here first? Thank you. Um, if the gay rights movement were to unilaterally declare victory and say, we won, we got what we want, we don't need to sue every baker and florist who doesn't want to service us with that, play any role, do you think, in, in lowering these tensions? Because it seems that this is really one of the driving issues behind yes. a lot of this kind of culture war. Well, I, th I think so. Think, I, th I think that would be a huge yeah. step forward. Look, just so to be perfectly clear, I come from a very conserv theologically conservative Christian background. Um, and I can tell you that almost without exception, I can't think of an exception, the people that uh, in my uh, denomination, the people, I'm sure there are exceptions, but people in my own church would say, great. Let's move on. Let's uh, get back to being doctors and selling insurance and whatever, and we'll debate tax rates or something. Do you agree with that, David? I think it would go a long way. I think we also, I think there's a reciprocal, a reciprocal obligation here. So I think that on the one hand, I absolutely agree that if a Kamala Harris administration is in oral argument with uh, the Supreme Court and asks the same question, says, no, we're not going to touch freedom of voluntary association of religious organizations. We're not going to do that. That would lower the temperature. Another thing that would lower the temperature is if prominent Christians didn't do things like freak out over the existence of a drag queen reading hour in Sacramento. And so, you know, this, there's probably only the tiniest few people in here who even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but it was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. So there was this um, advertisement for drag queen reading hour in Sacramento Public Library that um, 
and for you guys, those who don't know, that's you know, a drag queen will go to a library and parents who want to. Nobody's like, the military's not rounding up Christian parents and making them send their kids to the drag queen hour. Um, people who want to go and listen to a drag queen read children's books. And there was a guy named Sora Bomari who was a uh, New York Post op-ed editor. And he saw that and he was outraged by the existence of the drag queen reading hour. And he said, there's no polite David Frenchian way through this. Um, that we essentially just need to launch this culture war. Uh, to, to defeat the enemy, enjoy the spoils of victory. And so, yes, 100% I agree with you if you, had a, if you had a stand down, but we also have to have a stand down on the illiberal right that is now saying what we have to do is march through and use our political power to, to bulldoze through the culture. So it's a mutual. As a psychologist uh, who's a reformed Jew and an atheist, I find this conversation fascinating. My question is this. Trump made a statement in 215 that he could shoot somebody on 42nd Street and people would still vote for him. With that said, what if he said, these are my policies, I'm anti-abortion, whatever, but I don't believe in God. Would he have gotten the evangelical support? What do you think, Kate? Oh, I think so. I mean, I don't, I don't. I know that there are people in the evangelical world who are, because I read these things sometimes, who are trying, who are trying to. He's a baby uh, Christian. He's a baby Christian. <laughs> or or the, the alternative is he's around Thompson a lot said. of evangelicals. He's probably very Even close time. to becoming a Christian. I don't, see, I don't see that evidence. So what you're, David so, probably disagrees with that. So what I know you're you saying think, is you can bend the moral curve. No, I think no, 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 not at all. What I think uh, Christians are saying is uh, you don't have to be a Christian to be our president. You don't that there's not a religious litmus test that if we agree with your policies and think you'll do better than the other person on the ballot that that that's an acceptable use of prudence. Is that what you find in the evangelical? Community? I guess I, I guess me I think we have different views on what we think the evangelical project is. I think you think that it's a it has an overwhelmingly political intervention i think it's a largely therapeutic intervention so if it did it would they would want a moral alignment so yeah i think it really upsets people for moral reasons because they want a kind of spiritual thoroughness in their government and in their lives so, so i think it would matter i think evangelicalism is primarily therapeutic so yeah i think when he said two corinthians he was saying i'm not a christian <laughs> is is donald trump a role model for young evangelical Christians, for children. I mean, <laughs> I, I have, when you, Kate, when you said the phrase, when you put Donald Trump and faithful Christian in the same sentence earlier, it yeah. was a little. It hurt you, yeah. You're yeah. Like my ears. Yeah. Couldn't hear, I yeah, couldn't I, hear it anymore. It was, it was, yeah. a, it was an experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. but how, how important is role model and the presidency, truth, where does that fit with young evangelicals? Yeah, yeah. well, and I, I know the women's world better than other versions of it. I know that there are, for instance, educational projects that are deeply Republican that want a direct role modeling from governmental figures. And so there's a lot of bringing in founders and past uh, presidents as Christian role models. The evangelical women's world doesn't do that much but it does have a, a deep uh, patriarchy that wants a good and faithful man. And they, they, they have a, uh, most of that relationship plays out with their megachurch pastor and their, or their informal pastor. There's a John Piper for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but I, 
I do think it right now it's it's there's a there's a sort of sorrow over the inability to sort of have that benevolent patriarchy move all the way up the chain. So it's it's something I hear a lot of uh, bemoaning. Do you think that'll make a difference in voting behavior when there's a binary choice? I feel like we're entering into the mystery of Americanness that I just it's all fog for me. Yeah, I, can, I don't know. Either. But you're but you're up for a hockey yeah, you're up for a hockey question. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, if you want to ask me about north of the border, it's going great. Yeah. Sorry, Michael. It's such a good question. I wish I. Yeah. I think there's a shallow Christian Trumpism and a deep Christian Trumpism. And the shallow Christian Trumpism is. I don't like the guy. He's not a role model. He, I would not even like leave my kids with him. He's a bad, bad guy, but judges. So it's in, entirely transactional. Right. There is a deep Christian Trumpism that is trying to rehabilitate the whole Trump project in a particular way. And you saw it in, uh, you've seen it in some of the arguments about liberalism and illiberalism, and they often center around the role of decency and civility in public life. And you will see arguments within Christians. These are intramural Christian arguments over whether decency and civility are now a second order value. And whether the emergency of the times requires a much more Trumpian response. And, and so I, in that way, he has become a bit of an avatar. And, it's, and that's what's more alarming to me than the shallow Christian Trumpism. Mm. You mentioned the importance of building a shared future and not seeing the battle between liberals and conservatives as a zero-sum game. And I think a social issue that really embodies that is the pro-life, pro-choice issue. Can you paint a picture of a shared future in which both sides would not see each other threatened by that issue? Or how do you see a future in which we can all move forward? That's uh, a tough I, one. But... Do you want me to jump on the grenade? Yeah, <laughs> You know, I, I thought about this a lot. I'm sure everybody up here has. I mean, the, um, the best solution that I can come up with um, is that this is a subject that is, um, is obviously touches people very closely where they live. And there are ridiculously um, strong opinions on both sides. And one of the reasons that the temperature is so high on this issue is because there's a moral seriousness to it. Uh, but also because that's combined with the fact that it, by the, that it has been removed from the political sphere, where citizens, uh, through the electoral process, have a role um, in saying wh what, the, what the law is. If, that was, if it was to go back into the political process, let's say that, that states were allowed to make decisions on this, then we would have, I think that would lower the temperature, and you'd have a situation where Alabama would probably have outlawed abortion, and uh, New York, for example, or California would have fully government-funded abortion, and nobody would be totally happy, um, but people could figure out that, well, if I don't like the law, we can change it, we can work to change it, and would work through the normal political processes. But right now, the situation we have is everything actually is zero-sum. Elect a president, get the judges, and for, for pro-life people, hopefully we can get enough to overturn Roe v. Wade, which, by the way, would just put these things back to the states anyway, and so you would wind up in the situation I'm talking about. That, I think, is an imperfect solution, but maybe the, maybe the best one, to, to your, answer your question, but the best one that you could hope for to try and lower the temperature. And people forget that pre-Roe, the laws were becoming much more liberal in That's America exactly right. and were covering yeah. much more percentage of the American public. Right. So I think going back before uh, to a legal situation before Roe would not necessarily result in pro-life outcomes in a lot of places. There, there, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's another interesting factor here, I, and I agree with what 
Chris said. And I, and I would say what even compounds it is because we now only have a few swing states. Yeah. Most people are entirely and completely functionally disenfranchised from this decision. Mm -hmm. So if you're voting in where I'm in in Tennessee, my vote does not matter one way or another for president. It's going to be Trump's going to win Tennessee. And if you're a Republican living in New York, your vote is irrelevant and will be probably your whole life. Um, but the, the thing that I would also say that is very interesting and very much underreported because we always make the mistake, and I'm so glad you've been emphasizing non-political factors, we always make the mistake of looking everything through an exclusively political lens. If you look at the abortion rate, it peaked at the top of, at the very beginning of the Reagan administration, and it started to go down pretty dramatically through Republican and Democratic administrations to the point where it is now below the rate it was at Roe, when abortion was unlawful in parts of the country. And so the abortion rate itself is on this really steep decline in a relatively short amount of time. And the question I have, which I think is gonna be interesting, what if, you're, if that decline continues, and there's many factors for it. There's increased contraception, uh, there is people are getting married later. Um, lower teen pregnancy rates play a role. Much lower teen pregnancy rates. Morning more after, people. Morning after pills. More people are carrying uh, unwanted children to term. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots and lots of factors. What, what if we end up? And this would be like my hope, like because I don't see a way, a, a great political way through the, the culture wars in the meat short term. Um, but what if we're squabbling all the way to the rate goes down to near zero? Yeah. And that would be a really interesting cultural outcome. I do have one solution for the culture wars that would just take five to 10 minutes, which is to say- Why have that, you been hiding it? Oh, yeah. 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 I'm just gonna like reveal it from here. And it's that the six people that are supposed to be representing evangelicalism, like Franklin Graham and Jerry Fowler, <laughs> were no longer called immediately after every important thing happened. Right. And that I could provide them with a list of 20 names right. of people with massive followings and they could that. get a broader sampling of folks who are not, for instance, wanting a seat at a White House table. Can yeah, I get is, an amen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is self-selection in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, yeah. Right? Look, how about here? Hi there. You said um, a few minutes ago that the evangelical rate of support for Trump was 81%, which I'm assuming is the general election. So I get that, you know, they didn't want Hillary, they didn't like Hillary, whatever, for whatever reason. But backing up to the Republican primary, do you have a sense of what the spread of the evangelical vote was across maybe the top three or four? And why not the number two person who, I can't even remember who that was at this point, but why not some of those besides him? David? There is a huge, uh, so if you looked at the primary vote, uh, there was a big difference between church-going and non-church-going evangelicals. Now you might think, what's a non-church-going evangelical? And I'd say, come to the South. Um, so there's a big difference between the church-going and the non-church-going evangelicals. The, and, and this was consistent with greater research showing the more someone is alienated from civic institutions in their community, regardless of what the institution was, was it a church or a bowling league or whatever, the more likely they were to vote for Trump. So the church-going population in the primary rejected Trump. The non-church-going population in the primary, with the exception of the prosperity gospel folks, um, embraced Trump. And then in the in, and then the general, when it became the binary choice, everybody came home. Thank you. I'm a moderate Republican and a Christian, and I have always felt that the values that uh, Jesus Christ um, expects of us 
um, should play a role in, in how we look at politics and how we make decisions, whether it's a, a political decision where we vote or uh, a question of how I deal with an employee that works in my business. Um, and, and because of that, I have consistently been astounded that Christian evangelicals are supporting someone who is, uh, what was the word, uh, awkwardly, it was an awkward pairing of, uh, uh, of our president and, and frankly, what I see as Christian values and Christian morals. I, I'm astounded at that and I'm, and I'm still listening to your comments, I appreciate them, but I'm still frustrated as to how Christian evangelicals can support things such as the immigration crisis and our borders. Yeah. and uh, children and all the things that are in the news today yeah. uh, or, of the, or all the philandering and, and the dishonesty, all those kinds of things. Maybe someone can help me understand better how that's possible because I don't think that's what Jesus Christ calls us to be as Christians. Yeah, and I think the immigration crisis is, is a great example of the, the stark differential between sometimes male and female evangelical leadership on this. So James Dobson was just um, quoted as having visited the border and, and, and decided that uh, everyone is a degenerate and that he would not allow any of them through. And, uh, and the, but there's been incredible evangelical uh, female leadership around immigration issues, uh, a, a deep desire for fundraising and consolidation. And so there is, I think, a compassionate heart there, but the, over, the political overlay seems toxic to me. And I think it, is, it's, it seems irreconcilable because it is. Let's go here. Uh, the, po the podcast uh, through line uh, recently, uh, you know, which is, I don't know if people are familiar with it, but it does a history of, uh, of a current issue. And just a couple weeks ago, they did one on the history of the evangelicals in the United States. And I recommend that if you're interested in the history of how it evolved. Um, but one of the things that they sort of came to uh, the conclusion at the end of it, after going through the history, was that there was a strain of white supremacism um, that runs through the church, growing out of the civil rights movement and the desegregation of schools and the creation of Christian schools and the Supreme Court taking away the, the uh, tax exemption of the Christian schools that discriminated. So could the panel comment on that? Sure. Do you think that's accurate? I'm really glad you brought that up. I think there's a tremendous historiography on the question of evangelicalism and race. And it is certainly, if not a majority argument, it's a strong minority argument about why evangelicals have uh, self-segregated, well, not, I mean, have withdrawn. Uh, but it's also, it's, it's tough because as the historian, I wanna say that evangelicalism is also a tradition that has included Church of God in Christ, um, parts of the, Amer just various large African-American denominations. But the term itself has an incredibly racial connotation uh, for the reasons that you're describing. Southern populism has always had a strong racist element to it, white Southern populism. Um, white Southerners are very religious, um, as are black Southerners. And so that's, you're going to have seen that virus and one of the big projects of the Southern Baptist Convention, of my own denomination, the PCA, has been to try to eradicate that virus. Um, and I think one of the most grievous aspects of all of this is if you look at the two, the two most church-going populations in the United States are white evangelical Protestants and black Democrats, the two most church-going populations. And this political moment is deepening enmity 
because of politics in a community that has really been struggling to reconcile for a very long time. And to me, if I, if I had to say here's a grievous wound that is gonna endure there, it's that, and, and that's heartbreaking. Yeah. I, I wanna thank you all for a really wonderful, thoughtful discussion, and please join me in thanking you. David French is a senior writer for National Review. Kate Bowler is the author of Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel. Chris Buskirk is editor and publisher of American Greatness. Michael Gerson is a political and cultural commentator and syndicated columnist for The Washington Post. Their conversation was held in late June at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.